0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 20th, 2014, and this is episode 1283 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, and it is a Monday, and on Mondays we do listener feedback shows. These are your emails that send me ideas, questions, comments, articles that you found interesting, whatever, you know, kind of tickles your fancy to communicate with me about and have me comment on the air with you about on our Monday morning to get our week started off, uh, with some perspective of what's going on in current events and, you know, what struggles people have out there with their, their walk towards independence. These shows vary from, sometimes they're almost like completely a Newsday show and sometimes they're more of a show on, uh, you know, how do I, Jack, how do I do this or how should I do that or, you know, things like that. And, and we, I like the variety that comes in them. I pretty much take the questions that are easiest to, uh, to fit into a show like this every week or that are, you know when it's a if it's a time based event if it's something going on the news when I get it from like twenty people or more you can bet it probably is going to get on the air. Anyway, the way you can send me content for shows like this is to send an email to me. Send it to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. dot com. Again, Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. dot com. The the is very important. Thesurvivalpodcast.com. dot com. Put uh, comment for Jack, question for Jack, article for Jack, video for Jack, whatever in the subject line. Just use. One word, followed by 4Jack, and it'll get screened for this type of a show. Before I get into your uh, stuff today, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today... Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, what are you going to get from the Berkey guy? It might be shocking. It might be completely unbelievable, but the Berkey guy has Berkey water filtration systems. Seriously, though, I mean, I think that it's pretty well known that one of the best water uh, systems you can get your hands on is a Berkey. There's no moving parts. There's nothing to fail. They look beautiful in your home. You can get them in any size, really, that you would need that's practical, from quite small travel systems to larger systems. Uh, they're just a great system. And I think people are sold on the filters and the system itself. But why get it from the Berkey guy? Why not just get it from any random person? Well, Why wouldn't you get it from the guy, the Berkey guy? Why would you get it from the non-Berkey guy at the gun show when you can get it from the Berkey guy? Uh, Jeff is one of the leading resellers of Berkey products, in the world, so he gets incredible uh, factory pricing. He passes that on to his uh, his customers. He does a, an incredible job with customer service. He is just the most maniac style customer service guy I've ever seen. This is a guy that can't stop taking care of his customers. It, it's literally a compulsion with him. And in addition to Berkey's, he has some other great things for your prepping needs. You can find his website at directive twenty one dot com. And remember, he has a special program discount program. Uh, for you, when you buy from him, you'll find it in the benefits section of the member support brigade if you're a member. Just another reason to consider joining the MSB. Next up today, Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow. Um, you know, I I did up a uh, roast beef yesterday. It was amazing. It was amazing, guys. Let me tell you how I did this. Um, I took a big helping of Chef Keith's uh, Northern Italian and some other things like cracked pepper and some tarragon and a few other things. And uh, I put that into a uh, a bowl with uh two stick or a, really one stick because I have these the butter I get it comes in half sticks. so one full stick eight ounces of butter softened and, and mashed that up and then you added some some breadcrumbs to it yeah it's not paleo but you know when you really think about the ratios it's not that much breadcrumbs close to a cup maybe I made like a paste I took this roast beef and I coated it with mustard yes mustard you got to trust me here it won't taste like mustard when you're done if you don't like mustard it gives it something to stick to and then i put a light sprinkling of bread on it so that we had kind of a base for your spackling and you take that butter bread crumb mixture and you just basically coat the entire roast and then you roast that at 325 degrees with a big roast probably about two hours so it's still medium in the center it was amazing. But once again, what did I go to? Chef Keith's seasoning. If you want to learn to cook like that and you want some great seasonings to do it with, check out com. Check out his site, his YouTube channel, his podcast. Chef Keith's amazing. He'll help you make cooking a life skill. And those of you that don't think cooking is a survival school, uh, skill have never lived on MREs for six months like those of us who've served in the military may have. And, of course, Chef Keith also uh, has... Uh, a discount for members of the Member Support Brigade on his product. So check that out in the Member Support Brigade. Featured MSB vendor today, My Thai Coffee, best coffee I've ever drank. They're not really a show sponsor, but they do give a discount of 10% uh, to all MSB members. So if you'd be considering joining my Support Brigade, that's another reason. Coffee, is that a luxury? Yeah. But you know what? Stores really well, guys. It really does. Uh The butter rum stuff that they have there is just... I'm drinking a cup of it right now. Yeah, I bought five pounds of it and, and I'm going through it rather fast. I'm going to have to put in a larger order and it's nice to know I can save 10% uh, every time I order this stuff because I'm addicted to it. Check them out, mythicoffee.com. M-A-I-T-H-I coffee.com. And again, member sport brigade members do get a discount on that. It's a great time to tell you about the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts to about 40 different vendors. Uh, really great stuff. Stuff you're probably buying anyway. Support the show at 50 bucks a uh, a year or $5 a month. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys do qualify for a discount uh, to thank you for your service to our, our nation, either at home and or abroad. Email me with service discount in the subject line before not after you join the Member Support Brigade, but service discount in the subject line and uh, send that email to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. One or two sentences, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if your prior service. I'll send you back the instructions to get your discount. Uh, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And Another benefit of the member support brigade is MSB members have had free reign to do this all weekend, and probably uh, it looks like I'll get the show out pretty early today, so maybe after this show's published, maybe another 30 minutes before everybody can uh, get access to what I'm going to tell you about now. Um, actually, you know what? I skipped the time segment. I don't want to skip the time segment because we have an interesting thing today. Uh, the year's 1283. Uh, so what happened in the year 1283? In 802 uh, AD CE, King the II declares independence from Java, calling himself Jagat Taroha, Lord of the Universe, who is King. With the help of his Brahmin advisors, he chooses widely in establishing the Khmer Empire north of Tony Sap, meaning Great Lake, which is present-day Cambodia. It's a nat- it's natural choke point and annual flooding, making it ideal for agriculture and defense. Its capital city, Angkor, grew to become the largest urban center in the pre-industrial age, with some estimates making it 1 million inhabitants but his descendants, King Java, Yerma, whatever his name is, the 8th, is not faring so well. He has managed to fight off the Mongols for two years, but it's time to submit or be overrun. He will pay tribute to Kublai Khan, and the end of the Khmer Empire itself will be marked by the sacking of Angkor in 1431, which means that they survived the, uh, the the Khans from 1283 all the way to 1431, when the Khans are pretty much done by that point. Um, I I think that, my take on this might be a little bit different than Alex's, uh, though I do agree with his take. Uh, Alex, who's the person that puts these together for me, uh, paying for peace, the Khmer Empire submits. I included this piece to illustrate how important it is to consider terrain when locating your bug-out location. King Jayavaman II was, depending on experts like the Brahmin, to help him locate and manage a territory that could both support his people and be reasonably defensible. They realized this massive lake acted as a defense point, choking off the ingress, but also providing water and nutrients to the floodplain. Uh, it was a great location and made it practical to support such large numbers of people. I, I completely agree with that. But what I thought of when I read this is: pick your battles. Pick your battles. Uh, let's let's face it. There's no way this 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 people this this group of people, a million people living uh, in this place, wanted to submit to and pay tribute to the Mongol Empire. Nobody's like, gee, I hope they come here and extort us for money, but it it seems like even though they had a defensible position, they didn't have a winning hand, and they knew it, and they submitted rather than face the wrath, and it looks to me like they submitted in a way, it was like, here's your money, go away, and that's a very hard thing to do, isn't it? That's something a lot of us say, I would never do that, but... A lot of us do it every day when we pay our government taxes that we feel are unfair and unjust. Because the the trade-off is you're outgunned. And that by understanding when you can't win, you survive long enough to figure out how to win. That's that's a tenant um of Soviet sportsmanship that I learned from Valery Azanov, former KGB member and my systema mentor. He said that when they were training, he was in the Olympic judo squad. Right, so he he did judo in the Olympics, and he said that their training, especially with grappling, where it's a it's a it's a war of attrition in many ways, was not trying to win now. It was trying to make yourself undefeatable. So it's, you're not going for the victory immediately. You're trying to make sure that whatever you do, you're 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 tiring your opponent out. You're wearing your opponent out, and you'll even give him certain things that he thinks he wants and let him have them for a while. And wait for the opportunity. And if you survive long enough, sooner or later, the opportunity for victory will present itself. And there's, you know, stuff we covered last week, like the Freeman of the Land movement, people saying you don't have to pay taxes. And like I said, the only way I know not to pay income taxes in this country is not to have income. I mean, that, that's that's all it comes down to: picking your battles and understanding that if you want to develop a world with more liberty in it, you have to think about what you're doing along the way. Now, let me tell you about what's coming, and uh, again, this is open to MSB members all weekend, and now will be open to everybody this afternoon. Uh, when I do workshops at our homestead, I made a decision a while back that since they usually sell out, that I would open them for a couple days to MSB members as one of their benefits and then open them to everybody. There'll be, I think there will be plenty available today and maybe tomorrow for people that want to sign up for this one. Um, but. I I don't know how much longer than that it's going to last. So if you want to attend this, it probably makes sense to to get signed up for it right away. Uh, We're going to do this on February 21st, 22nd, and 23rd at my homestead like we've done previous events. People can show up on the 20th to set up their campsites. We don't do anything formal on the 20th. We pretty much have Josiah meet you and tell you where you can camp. If you want to camp, it will be February. I don't know how conducive to camping that's going to be. We do have outbuildings. that people can camp inside the outbuildings, it's a bit warmer that way. Um, all the details of this are given to you once you sign up and make a deposit, but... Uh, the other question I always get is, where can I fly into if, they're not, if you're not from the Texas area? Uh, and that would be Dallas-Fort Worth Airport would be the best airport to fly into. But we are going to do a mobile battery backup system uh, workshop with Stephen Harris with some bonus workshops that I'm going to be teaching myself. A couple little one-hour additional ones and some other cool stuff. But I- I'm really excited about what we're going we're gonna to do with Steve. I've got my truck and two other people that are coming, two students that are coming, their trucks. We'll pull three trucks into the base every day in the garage. Uh, we'll get those trucks, and, and we will install mobile battery backup systems in those trucks. Basically, we're going to turn these trucks into rolling power stations. Uh, and, and I want you to think about the the, the the reason to do this beyond just if something goes wrong, you have a power uh, available to you. It's like an additional generator, so to speak. It's also the capture of wasted energy. Every day, people drive to and from work and to and from stores and trucks. And many of those trucks already have a toolbox in the back of them. And by setting up what we're going to do, you're basically taking wasted energy, surplus energy that's lost. Because that internal combustion is going to run anyway, and you're capturing it. And there's no reason that you can't run electrical devices off of that, even in a time when you know there's nothing wrong. In fact, it might be a good idea. You learn more and more about your system, how long it lasts and what have you. And it can actually start to have an effect on your electric bill right away. Now, I'm not saying you're going to run your whole house off of a battery bank in the back of a truck, but you certainly can run lights and TVs and things like that, uh, certainly for a couple hours here and there, and maybe take that off your electric bill if you want to set up some permanent cabling to do that with would be you know one suggestion I would have. But you also have something, let's say you set up a little bug-out location, a little off-grid cabin. You pull your truck up, you plug into your power station, basically... Now you have a power system for your bug out location, but it's not there to be stolen while you're not there. You know, wouldn't it be great if you had this nice solar array on your roof of your bug out location and you had this, you know, all these batteries inside your little cabin and all and you, you came there and somebody stripped all the panels and the batteries and took them and they're gone. Now, now you were depending on them and they're not there. Whereas if it's in your vehicle, you pull up and hook up. And when you need more power, you idle your vehicle. And most of us, let's face it, if we go somewhere like that for deer hunting or whatever to use it in good times, our vehicle does move around once in a while, right? So every time we move that vehicle around, we're topping off those batteries. It's one of the most flexible systems I've ever seen that Steve built. It's A lot of people have built them already on their own using the DVD that Steve sells. But I've heard from a ton of people that, are, that don't have the confidence to work with electricity at this level. If you come to this event, you will have the confidence to do it. And I'll tell you what else. Adding solar to this is easy. It's in another charge controller, which you'll already know how to do, and wiring a panel panel to it. And if you want more panels, you wire the panels together. That's it. So when you're done with this workshop, not only will you be able to build stationary battery banks, like let's say in your closet for backup power in your home, run by a simple charger like the one that, that I have to back up my systems right now, Just over from me. Not only will we be able to build mobile backup systems like the ones we're going to build in the garage, but you will be able to build the heart of solar-powered systems anywhere because the reality is the inverter, the charge controller, the batteries, the wiring, setting that up. That's the hard part. The, The panels are point them at the sun, attach them to whatever they're attached to, and run a wire to a charge controller that ties into that system. So... Even though we're not probably, and I might, I might bring in a panel or two as well, I don't know. But even though we really don't plan on working with solar here, you'll be able to do off-grid battery backup solar systems when we're done with this. Build mobile battery banks. And I'm going to do something cool. I told Steve, is three days enough to do three trucks with three teams? He said, absolutely. So I added two more workshops to it that are totally unrelated. We're going to do a home brewing workshop. I'm going to show you basic brewing equipment, teach you about specialty grains and hops, bitterness, extracts. I'm going to show you in a PowerPoint all the things you need to know to be able to brew your own beer and make your own wine or make your own meat. And it's going to be really simple to do after that, and we'll probably have plenty of time where we'll actually brew a batch. We did that at the last workshop. It was a pretty big hit. This time it'll be a little more organized, though, where I'll have all the equipment laid out into a PowerPoint for you where you can really understand what we're doing while we're doing it. Um, I'll also do a cover cropping workshop where I'm going to talk about making cover crop seed mixes and things like that. If you came to the last workshop, it'll be that same presentation. Uh, but I imagine a lot of people coming to this one will have not been there. If you have, if you're coming back, thank you for coming back. Um, but I'll tell you that uh, you could use that as some downtime then. Um, but for everybody else, this is one that people have huge questions on. And the last time we did it, we videoed it, and the video got corrupted. So this way we'll be able to get the video out for everybody. Uh, I'd really love to see as many people here as possible for this. Again, February twenty second, uh, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, plenty of time to make air arrangements. We do have a private email list that people can join on Yahoo Groups. I really recommend if you're coming, you get on that list. Students work together to arrange pickup times from airports and share rooms. We're getting a group rate like we always do from a great local hotel for those that don't want to camp and uh and, and I really again hope to see many of you guys here for this and uh, yes, this event will be open for registration for everybody at noon today so if you're listening to this at one or two o'clock, you can go to the survivalpodcast. com and it'll be up there and you'll be able to uh to sign up for it and just on backup power, let me say I think it's one of the most critically under appreciated things in prepping. If we had the majority of pickup truck owners in America with systems like this in the back of their truck, we'd have a lot of resiliency just from that alone. And, again, I want you to think about every time you drive down the road and you look to your left and right, you see all these vehicles sitting there at idling, blah, 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 blah. That vehicle is using more energy to idle than it can possibly need. There's a tremendous waste of energy. When you're sitting there with your foot on the brake, you're actually hold you're breaking the energy. This is a way to recoup a lot of this energy. and from a standpoint of being able to assist people in a disaster, being able to pull a truck up, plug things straight away into it, have long-term resiliency in that. I mean two stumble a little earlier two GC2 golf cart batteries. It's a, a huge energy reserve. Um, I talked to Steve, I was going to do four, and he kind of talked me out of it and keeping the extra space. I'll also be revealing to you guys. And I'm not going to do this on the air. And I'm never actually even going to show this. The plans that I have for my pickup truck, this is stage one of, there will be an additional component to what I'll be doing to my truck. They will make it one of the best low-visibility bug-out vehicles you've ever seen. One of the, It's going to be so simple and so cool and add so much storage to the vehicle, but you'll have to come to this workshop to see what it is. But, um, again, love to see you guys here. Let's get on to uh, some other things. Uh, I got an email from Brad, and uh, it says, On the service, this looks great, but as always, I'd be interested in your take on this. And it's a Huffington Post article, which doesn't mean it's bad. Not everything on Huffington Post is bad. A lot of things are, but not everything. This one's not bad at all. Um, This is a person who's very involved with uh, permaculture, which, of course, I am a big fan of, though I don't like some of the hippie... BS that gets drugged in, politics that get drugged into permaculture, uh, that doesn't really belong there, but I don't see it here. Um, so don't it. why did I even say all this? Uh, because I, I know there's people out there that as soon as they hear Huffington Post, they roll their eyes and go, oh, well, I understand. Um, there's definitely, you know, Obama propaganda on Huffington Post, but, uh, there's also some good stuff, and this is an example of good stuff. Let me read the article to you. It's by Sarah Leon. For three past years, I've done what I love, teaching my community how to cultivate urban soils for food production and continually educating myself about organic gardening, permaculture, placemaking, guerrilla gardening, food preservation, and more. Urban agriculture is a beautiful act of rebellion and hope when seeking social justice. See, there has to be social justice in there, right? When you are gardening, you learn quickly about its abundance. One tiny seed grows into a plant that can produce hundreds of seeds. A teaspoon of well-cultivated soil could be home to millions of microorganisms. Many diverse systems are at work to maintain its overall health. On my path, sometimes money failed me. My favorite gardening gigs were the ones I was doing for free or limited pay. The opportunities for paying gigs were slim, part-time, and competitive. Early in my career, I was introduced to time banking and joined as a means to earn time dollars and pay it forward currency for my volunteer gigs and use them to pay for more education. Time banking offers an alternative to money and diversifies our economic systems. The message from time banks is simple. We all have something to offer and something to gain from each other. Like bartering, services and and items are provided without money. But unlike bartering, there is no need for a direct exchange of services. For each hour of service you provide you earn a time dollar, which in turn can be used for any service you may need, such as a ride to the airport or tips for revamping your website. Time banks can also provide a meaningful way to test the market for those interested in starting their own business or changing careers. Um, if you want to read the little bit that's left of the article, you can. Time banking is an idea that has some real merit. And time banking is just, in essence, to Brad who asked me you know, my thoughts on this, it's just basically organized barter that's based on labor versus goods. And that's really what it comes down to. We're we're, we're valuing human energy and saying that an hour of my energy is equivalent in value to an hour of your energy, which on some levels is true and on some levels is patently false. And it's part of what usually holds something like this back. And what I mean by that is there is no doubt that the hour of time a brain surgeon might say, spend to save your life has more value than an hour of time raking leaves. To so put it on complete and total extremes, that there there are people whose time is more valuable in service than other people. Doesn't mean that the people who have a lower value per hour of time. Um, are not good people, or not valuable people, but let's face it, what does it take for a brain surgeon to attain the level of expertise and knowledge necessary to save a life by operating on the human brain versus how much education and experience uh, go behind learning how to use a rake and rake leaves, right? Not that the raking of leaves isn't important, just come on. So that's one fundamental flaw with time banking. But it's not insurmountable. What it does is it creates a labor pool of things that most people could do, and it actually equalizes itself out, right? You won't see a ton of people offering the services of a CPA in a time bank. It can happen, but when you do see it, it's usually where there's some fractionalization of the hours, right, where they say, like, well, what I'll do is I'll I'll do a two-for-one, so one hour of CPA services is going to be equivalent to two hours of basic services. And and, and that the, see, the beauty of this is if you do it based on hours and you don't tell the economy, they have to be uh, rigidly held to what you're doing. If you don't try to control the economy, you let the economy be a free market, that happens naturally where you go to the CPA and say, well, you know, and he says, well, what are your time hours? What do you do? And, he, and you say, well, I, I babysit kids, I give rides to people, uh, and I do light yard work. He might say, you know, come on, I'm a CPA. You want me to file your taxes for you? I'll tell you what, we'll do two for one. So uh, I'll give you an hour, but you give me two. Because he also is thinking, I may not need you, I may give your hours to somebody else. right? So the whole time has a bank where people are available to provide services based on these time hours. What's the biggest flaw, though, in our current system? The need for dollars, period. The only way you would ever make time banking really, really work for a thriving small system economy is to have a thriving ex- external economy as well. So if you have a system where people are making enough income to meet their basic needs for housing, for energy, for health care, for things like that, for food, and, and then this time banking is used as an adjunct, it can work. Otherwise, it can't work. And that's when we evaluate alternative economic systems, that's the type of evaluation we need to do. That's why I bring it up. When you evaluate Bitcoin, it's different than time banking because Bitcoins are fungible, meaning they're exchangeable into other units of value or currency. So if I have a time bank hour Let's say the most famous one is probably Ithaca, New York, Ithaca Hours. And I'm in Tallahassee, Florida. And I want to use that hour for something. Other than if I can sell somebody on the novelty of isn't this cool, it's worthless to me. If I need my oil changed in Tallahassee. an Ithaca Hour is worthless outside of the economy of Ithaca. And it only works in the vendors that will take it. And there's probably places in Ithaca where I can go spend an Ithaca hour and get my oil changed. If I have a Bitcoin that I collect in Ithaca, New York, over the internet, through a paper wallet, whatever, and now I'm in Tallahassee and I need my oil changed, I can convert that Bitcoin to cash. Or it's possible, and getting to be more and more probable, that there might be a station there that will do my oil for me for a Bitcoin. So when we're looking at alternative currencies, this is what you have the two big dividing points, you either have a currency that can exist as a standalone, or you have a currency that has to exist parallel to. It has to have outside inputs. So for time-based economies to function... You need an, an, an overall enveloping economy, or you need you know socialist utopia where everybody already has everything they need anyway, and it's you know anything that you would buy is beyond your basic needs, which okay that always ends as i've said in ah! and death right so you to to make a time based system work you have to have this this adjunctive system to make a system like Bitcoin work you can actually because it's an, an initially. This is important to understand this because initially it's fungible, the desire for fungibility will decline over time. The only thing that you really need to make an economy stand alone is to make sure that you can buy all your basic needs and services within that economy. In other words, most people never convert US dollars to anything because inside the United States, where most people spend their entire lives, most people that are Americans don't get the most Americans spend their entire lives in the borders of the United States seldom travel outside the United States, and even if they do, often can use dollars outside of our economy. But you can pay for your housing, you can pay for your car, your gas, your food, your taxes, everything with dollars. So even though the dollar is fungible, transferable to gold or to silver or to euros or to Australian dollars, it doesn't matter. No one cares because everything's available within the economy. So if you end up setting up a silver exchange, where people can use silver as currency. Silver is fungible. It can be transformed into dollars. But it's more complex to transform in most instances than something like a Bitcoin. But it works. But the way you're going to really give that economy life is to attract enough users into that economy and suppliers and buyers that I don't have to fungible the <laughs> the component, right? That That, that we would retain... A silver, silver for silver exchange. A silver for value exchange. That you would start pricing your hours as a CPA in silver. Or you start, uh, you know, how much do you need the CPA then, right? If you, if you take it outside of the U.S. tax economy, the CPA might not be so in demand anymore. But you might price something like your beans in Bitcoins. Or your, you know, your services as a gunsmith in Bitcoins. Or... You name it, gasoline and bitcoins. Gasoline and bitcoins. That gets interesting, doesn't it? Because there's a federal tax to be levied on, and a state tax to be levied on gasoline. It's, it's an interesting place we're starting to go with alternative currencies. But as you're evaluating how an alternative currency would work, you have to ask yourself, could this stand alone? And generally speaking, the funny thing is, what's not fungible cannot like Timex. It's not fungible. I can't go for, to another place and exchange that to another unit of value to use it in, outside the economy that I was already in. But the ones that are fungible can grow large enough to not really need the fungibility except for specific reasons. It, it's, it, it, the reason I even discussed this with you today is, is like my contention is most people don't understand money. Most people have no idea what money is. They believe the ass clowns on TV that tell you only gold is money. Well, it's nonsense. And you notice what those people want from you to give you gold. Cash that they tell you is worthless. Money is a psychological agreement. And it's a symbol of energy. That's really what it comes down to. All things of value have energy that went into their production or development or growth or manufacturing. And they derive their value, by and large, based on the energy that goes into their production or growth or development or delivery. So, in other words, you might tell me that a gallon of water isn't worth very much. But a gallon of water in the middle of the desert is worth a lot more. Not just because it's scarce, but because it takes energy to transport it there. Now, if I ramp the scale up by running a big pipe into the desert from a large reserve, there's a huge infrastructure cost. But once that's, once that's recouped, the value of a gallon of water actually goes down because the means of delivery is efficient. But if I have to transport the water in sacks on the back of a camel to the middle of the desert, it's going to trade for more. Because why? Because why? Why? Because it's scarce? Sort of, but not really. Because it's not really scarce. planet's covered in it. Because there's energy that must go into the transportation. That is where the added cost will come from. And when you start to think about that, you start to understand how a ridiculous thing like a debt-based economy that we're currently in can, can last for so long. And you start to realize that a lot of these horror stories where they're telling you that the whole thing's going to crash tomorrow and it never does just to sell you crap that they want money for uh, are, are lies. Then we'll probably see this economy eventually come into an unwinding. On that note, the next thing I have to talk with you about, one of my favorite useful idiots, Porter Stansberry, is at it again. Uh, we, we can just stop, folks, we can just stop. We can stop worrying about when it's going to happen and just start preparing for it. Because Porter Stansbury has told us, on July 14th, the dollar will die. That's it. It's over. It's end. It's done on July 14th. Congress is going to pass some law that I can't find any information on other than the number that he gives in the law was last uh, legislative sessions. It was a law to help returning vets. So I don't know if he made the number up out of his ass. He's usually not that bad about it. But supposedly, Congress will pass a law on July 14th, Make it impossible for you to protect your money and the money will become worthless almost overnight. The, the whole thing's over on July 14th, 2014. 7, 14, 14. Hmm, ominous date. H- who told this guy that he was able to figure out exactly when Congress would pass laws? I mean, ha- have, have you paid attention to how Congress works? Um, Stansbury is one of the most successful hucksters. Selling to the preparedness crowd, selling to the fear of collapse. Um, I don't know how anybody buys this shit. I mean, I remember that it it was in 2000 and, uh, 2012, he said that oil would be under $40 a barrel by the end of the year. It was a crash and going to destroy everything. And I think oil ended the year like 80 bucks a barrel. Um, he had another thing that the dollar, the dollar was going to die. Or end of America, that was his other thing, end of America. Six months or less, end of America. Six months or less, six months come and go. He kept running, he ran the ad telling you that America would be dead in six months for for 12 months. Nobody calls him on it. Why? To sell you a subscription service for U.S. dollars that will soon be worthless, um, to give you investment advice. <sighs> If you don't understand money, you're susceptible to this. If you understand money, you're not. You realize that even in an economic calamity, an economic collapse, an economic shift, that a means of exchange will always exist because people will always want to do business with each other. That there are tremendous resources. The the big problem people don't understand is what is the source of wealth? What is the source of all wealth? And the answer is the earth itself. The earth itself is the source of all wealth on this planet. There is nothing that if you trace back where it derives its existence from doesn't come from dirt. If you want to make steel, you mine it from the earth as an ore and you refine it and you need to burn something like coal or wood to refine it. All of that comes from the earth. And then everything that steel is used to produce comes from the earth. If you want people to survive, they have to eat. It comes from either protein or vegetation. And if it's protein, (laughs) when I'm talking about meat, the cow had to eat a vegetable, so you could eat the cow. All wealth comes from our planet, period. And as long, therefore, as the planet functions and provides a means of existence economies will be developed based on that is the root value. Where we get in trouble is the further we get away from this, the more fake we make that. The, the more we lose touch with that reality, the more subject we become to manipulations, and we end up in a system where a guy like Stansbury can use the truth to sell you a lie. And What I mean by that is he puts in his little, his latest little presentation, which, by the way, like the first 15 minutes... It might as well just be the last four of these things. The same shit. And then with a new spin, that's all it is. So I think some of it might actually be the same shit. Like literally just reused. Repackaged and recon, you know, reconglomerated to sell this next thing that's the same thing he was selling back in 2010 and in 2008. Huckster extraordinaire. But when we lose touch with that, you take the, the truth. Soon, the United States will reach a point where we will not be able to pay the interest on our debt, sort of, kind of, right? Because we will. Just what will happen when we do? When we have to print $800 billion out of thin air to pay the interest on our debt, what will occur? What will that do to them? So we have these real problems in our economy, and then people like Stansberry use all of these problems to sell you a lie. I can tell you when the end is coming, and it's coming soon, and the world will end, and everybody will die, unless you're smart and get my investment advice. It's nonsense. And it goes to the heart of people not understanding money. So I'll say it one more time. Money is a psychological agreement on a value of a symbol for energy within an economy. That's actually what money is. I'm the only person I've ever heard define it that way. I've analyzed money in every way that I possibly can. And I'm telling you that's what money actually is. It is the economy itself that gives value to a unit of exchange. The dollar is worth what it's worth because of what it will buy, not because of what backs it. And what destroys a currency generally isn't what backs it or doesn't back it. It's a a breach of the psychological contract. When people simply say, I no longer agree to this value proposition, And if it's one person, it doesn't matter. But there's a critical mass in society where when you go to a certain percentage of people, specifically people that are merchants, sellers of goods and services, who all start to collectively agree that this money is no longer value, entrepreneurs who know they can't pay their bills anymore that have to raise the price of services, and then the response is just add more money to the pool, that's where you go into inflation. And that's where the velocity of money speeds up, and that's where most of these systems fall apart. It's not always the way they fall apart, but it generally is. And the faster the system grows and the faster the system moves, the quicker the psychological contracts become broken. And if you think about it, every time the dollar loses value, it's because a piece of the psychological contract has broken down. Today, a dollar buys X pieces of corn. Tomorrow, it buys less. Basic supply and demand might simply be there's less corn. But often, there's just as much or more corn the next day. No real increase in demand. And yet, it still takes... A dollar still buys less pieces of corn. Because we've collectively stopped being bound by the old contract and we've, in its living economy, collectively decided that the value of the dollar is less. That's the slippery slope we're on. The erosion of the value of our money. And that's why you're seeing so much happen with competing currencies. It's not just the desire to do business anonymously. It's not just a desire to take control of our own wealth again. To take it out of the hands of the banking elites. It's also a mistrust of the current system. And with good reason. But don't run through the hills and make stupid decisions with your money and don't give it to the likes of Porter Stansbury. As I move to the next story, I mean, part of the problem here is is what you call economic ignorance. People don't understand money, then they don't understand economics. Um, and, and when you don't understand economics, you become susceptible to all types of things, like preparing for a collapse that's already happening, right? And thinking, well, one day... Because um, what if I told you that... America was on track to lose much of its economic liberty in the future and we would soon not even be in the top 10 most free countries economically in the world. The, 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 the supposed bastion of capitalism was on track to soon be ranked, let's say 12th for economic liberty globally. The, 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 the home of the free market will soon be the 12th ranked, economic, free country in the world versus number one. Oh, we're already here. Dave sent me this article. Um, it's an article in the Wall Street Journal by Terry Miller. Let me read some of it to you. World economic freedom has reached record levels according to the 2014 Index of Economic Freedom released Tuesday by the Heritage Foundation and the Wall Street Journal. But after seven straight years of decline, the US, U.S. has dropped out of the top 10 most economically free countries in the world. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to tell you right now that if you lined up 100, 100 average Americans and asked them simply the, the, the case, is the United States considered one of the top 10 countries for economic liberty? As long as you got people intelligent enough to know what economic liberty was, that probably 70 to 80% would say, of course. We're number 12. For 20 years, the index has measured the nation's commitment to free enterprise on a scale of 0 to 100 by evaluating 10 car- categories, including fiscal soundness, government size, and property rights. These commitments have powerful effects. Countries achieving higher levels of economic freedom consistently and measurably outperform others in economic growth, long term prosperity, and social progress. Botswana, for example, has made gains made gains through lower tax rates and political stability. Those losing freedom, on the other hand, risk economic stagnation, high unemployment, uh, deteriorating social conditions. For instance, heavy-handed government intervention in Brazil's economy continues to limit mobility and fuel a sense of injustice. It's not hard to see why the U.S. is losing ground. Even marginal tax rates exceeding 43% cannot finance runaway government spending which has caused the national debt to skyrocket. The Obama administration continues to shackle entire sectors of the economy with regulation, including health care, finance, and energy. The intervention impedes both personal freedom and national prosperity. But as the U.S. economy languishes, many countries are leaping ahead, thanks to policies that enhance economic freedom, the same ones that made the U.S. economy the most powerful in the world. Governments in 114 countries have taken steps in the past year to increase economic freedom of their citizens, 43 countries from every part of the world have now reached their highest economic freedom ranking in the index's history. I'll let you read the rest of the article if you want to, but let me just read that one line again. 43 countries from every part of the world have now reached their highest economic freedom ranking in the index's history. Now, many of these nations are not as economically free as the United States is, yet. But what do I always say about liberty? Liberty is a sliding scale that you're on. You're either moving toward greater liberty or greater freedom. Those nations are on that scale moving toward liberty while our nation is sliding toward tyranny. Let me read to you, um, let me read the top 20 nations in order, starting with the most free leading to the least free economically and, and seeing where the U.S. falls in this. Number one, Hong Kong. Number two, Singapore. Number three, Australia. Number four, Switzerland. Number five, New Zealand. Number six, Canada. Number seven, Chile. Uh, Number eight, Meritus. Number nine, Ireland. Number ten, Denmark. Number eleven, Estonia. Number twelve, United States of America. Number thirteen, Bahrain. Number fourteen, the United Kingdom. Number fifteen, the Netherlands. Number sixteen, Luxembourg. Number seventeen, Taiwan. Number eighteen, Germany. Number nineteen, Finland, And number 20, Sweden. How does it feel, folks, to have your country, the good old stars and stripes, the hallmark of free markets in the words of everybody that tells you that the free market is good or failed? It's only the contrarians. It's only the alternative media that have told you anything other than that. Even the people who hate the free market point to us and say we're proof the free market doesn't work. How does it feel to hear me say names like Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, Switzerland, New Zealand, Canada, Chile, Meredith, Ireland, Denmark, and Estonia before the United States? Before the United States of America when judging any liberty, but specifically economic liberty. And 40 odd nations in this index have reached their highest level since the index was started over 20 years ago. While well, the US has tumbled from the top five to outside of the top 10. And if anybody wants to lay odds with me, I'll put a bet out right now that anybody wants to take. Email me. The US will fall at least five positions in 2014. That in 24, 2015, when we read this, we'll be sitting around 16, 17, 18. Bahrain will outtake us. The United Kingdom will slide further itself, but nations like ne- Netherlands, Luxembourg, Taiwan, Germany, they'll all move up. They'll all move up. And we'll move back. You might even see some nations over this next year that are up in the mid-20s, like Austria and Iceland and Georgia, move into the top 15. You very well likely see Georgia and Lithuania move way up. These are nations that were part of the former Soviet Union, guys. If you want to know, China is at 137. 137. and They're our biggest economic rival. You wonder do those two things mesh, and I think they do because China was probably at like 170 ten years ago. So again, let's start to understand. It's not just about where you are, but what direction are you trending? Money in this world goes where it's treated well. It also it it, it it pays attention to the trend. When 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 big money sees a nation sliding away from economic liberty. And they see another nation that may not even be as good yet sliding toward freedom. They go through the one sliding. They know they can get on that wave. They know they can get on that wave and they can ride it forward. They don't want to swim upstream. Which is what you're doing when you're in a nation that's curtailing economic liberties. And you're trying to build a business and be successful. So... When is the collapse of the United States of America's economic sovereignty coming? It's here. It's ongoing. It's been ongoing. We continue to dwindle. We continue to fall. China will probably not ever be as free economically as we are right now. In some ways, they'll be far less. In some other ways, they may be far more free economically. But they'll be the number one economy in the world by 2020 will be yet another list where America is not number one anymore. You'll have your children saying, can you believe we used to be number one at anything? We were the best at anything? Instead of watching the Winter Olympics and feeling sad that, you know, you see United States in position 4 or 14 in an event, how about number 12 in economic freedom? Something that really matters. Um Next on the uh, continued misdirection of the preparedness community by those that want to sell you crap, let's talk about Fukushima. We haven't done that in a while. So I, what I've been looking for is someone that I trust covering this uh, that would tell you that it's bad but tell you the truth that I figured was the case. And I don't trust MSN and NBC and Fox News with, with giving us the, the lowdown on Fukushima. I don't. That's where I agree with many in alternative media that you can't trust these people. I do trust Little Rockwell. And there is an article on Lou Rockwell right now by Angela Davis from the Voice of Russia. And here's what the article says. The headline, Millions at Fatal Risk as Fukushima Radiation Poisons the Pacific. Now, when this was all going on, I told everybody over here to not freak out and buy iodine capsules and pay $90 a bottle for them and, and, and hide in a bunker and worry about this, that it would have very little to no effect on anybody in the United States of America. Well, I must be wrong, because this is millions at fatal risk as Fukushima radiation poisons the Pacific. See? And, and I've heard my late, my favorite shock jock lately going, it's out of control. It's in the ocean. I'm sending people with Geiger counters to the beach to prove it. It's, there's, there's, there's hot particles and uh, you know, all this crap, right? Okay. And then uh, we have the best iodine available in our store. So you should get some of that. We have the regular iodine, too. It costs us, but we're the best. You should want the best. Okay. Listen. Let's start out with what what iodine does for radiation poisoning. Iodine protects one part of your body for radiation poisoning, the thyroid. It's an acute measure that you can use if you're in a place where you've got bigger problems anyway. Like near ground zero of a detonation of a nuclear bomb. It's one thing you can do that might help, maybe. But I don't know if you're familiar with radiation and the dangers of radiation, but it affects a lot more than just the human thyroid gland. It's, it's The thyroid is particularly susceptible uh, and can be kind of an entry point for radiation. That, so if if certain parts of the thyroid are taken up with iodine, then radioactive iodine doesn't get taken into there, and it, 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 it can mitigate some, possibly some, of the effects of radiation. But it's not like you can pop a few iodine tablets and walk through the middle of Chernobyl. While it's, you know melting down and be okay. So that alone is very misleading. And I'm going to put this article up. You can read the whole thing if you want to. And they will talk a lot about what's wrong and how bad it is and things that are going on and how there's radiation being dumped into the Pacific and the dangers to Japan, et cetera. And I agree with all of that. And I think that the mainstream media is underplaying it. But let me read you the most important paragraph from this article as it relates to us here in the United States, this is their expert that they're interviewing to make the case that this is indeed out of control and that millions of lives are at risk. All right? This is not some counter-strike thing or something like that, counterpoint of don't worry about it. This is the guy saying it's bad. It's really bad. He says... Most at risk, in my opinion, is confined, most of, most of the risk, in my opinion, is confined to Japan. The concentrations of radionuclides which are going into the Pacific or have been injected to the Pacific by this time, by the time they get to the US and China and to the Southeast Korea and so on will not be enormously high. I'm not saying that this is great. I mean, there is some risk to these people and particularly the risk is from ingestion of radionucleotide particles and not so much from the dilute stuff, the stuff in solution. But the main risk will be to the people of Japan, and it will be people who live along the coastline of eastern Japan who will be greatly at risk. You you won't hear that part from people like Alex Jones, will you? This is the truth. the, 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 The conspiracy of Fukushima is the lie that the people of Japan are going to be okay. We're going to have lots of disease and death for a very long time in Japan. Japan's a relatively small nation. This is a tragedy. And it's probably not a good idea to be eating a lot of Pacific fish right now either. But even that problem, even that problem will largely self-correct over time. They will get control of this, and I'll tell you why. Not because they're switched on, highly competent people that have to, but because they have to. They have no choice. They're like Whatever needs to be done here is going to be done because the alternative is much worse. So they will eventually get these things fully decommissioned. It might take 10 to 20 years. And the damage done specifically in Japan. And specifically in that part of the Pacific. I, I don't even know if I agree with the the doctor here that much about the risk along like China's coastline and everything, except the major flow is away. But anything that ends up kind of Eddie backwashed into like the South China Sea and stuff, man. I, I think the concentrations will be much higher there. But this is the other thing about Fukushima. People in this country that are all freaked about about this and screaming, Fukushima, 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 unless they're trying to sell you a a, a nutritional supplement, I I, want to know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Dig a hole in the ground? I mean, this is what I said when this thing first happened. They'll keep drumming up the hysteria because they can sell to you with it. But the reality is we detonated nuclear bombs above the surface in the southwestern deserts of the United States. And that, I'm not saying nothing bad happened because of that, but we sure didn't wipe everybody out because of it. And that that had done more harm to people in this country through radioactive exposure than Fukushima ever could. Please keep your composure with things like this. Please be careful of anybody who tells you something's really, really dangerous. Here's your solution. Oh, I just happen to sell it. Please. Because the temptation to do that is great. When you build your whole persona, your whole industry, your whole business around, they're coming to get you, then you sell to that meme every time you can. Now, do I believe that if Fukushima posed a serious risk to the United States of America directly, that our government would hide it from us? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I do not believe this is not the case because our government says it's not the case. I believe it's not the case because I understand, you know, like the globe and physics and science. That There's simply, in any way that you look at this, no way that you can get enough radiation out of the current situation into this country to do any real harm. Now, is it possible that someone swimming in the beach in the Pacific Ocean might get a hot particle in their NAD and end up with a problem? Yeah, it is. But there's also natural radiation that we have to worry about with that anyway. There's places in the world where we have radioactive cadmium. It's not because somebody built a power plant that exploded. It's because it's naturally occurring. The the belief that we can live in a world free of any radioactive threat is nonsensical. Am I saying we should be building 100,000 nuclear power plants and it's perfectly safe? No, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that this thing's overblown by alternative media and underreported by mainstream media at the same time. And the reason I'm covering this today is I want you to be able to start filtering this stuff in your own mind. And say to yourself, does this make sense? What do we know historically has occurred? Nuclear bombs detonated in the United States of America in the 1950s. Not one, several. Fallout, problems, yes. Can you research it and find that some of the things were covered up and what really happened? Yeah, Can you find the decimation of all life on the planet and what have you from this? No. Okay, then that tells us that even blowing up a nuclear bomb in the middle of the New Mexican desert or the Nevada desert doesn't do what they're saying in alternative media Fukushima is going to do. Okay? So it's reasonable, then, that this whole hype thing might be overblown. Then you look at Fukushima the lack of interest in the mainstream media and say, does this seem like it's a problem for anybody? Would I like to buy real estate, you know, just south of Fukushima on the ocean? Oh no. Oh, well then, then we also know that we're getting not the true story from mainstream media either. This is the bigger story. This is the bigger story. While they're doing this, while they're decommissioning these plants, the risk is another Geological catastrophe, another earthquake, another tsunami before they're done. One on the level of what already happened. The odds of it are probably not that high. These are major tectonic events that generally when you have something as big as that earthquake or the one that previously happened uh, in Malaysia, it's a major point where you have two tectonic plates pushing against each other, there's pressure that's built up, and there's a pop. As one plate finally gives and goes under or over the other. And and that's what causes something of that magnitude. And generally when that occurs at that particular junction, we've taken the pressure off for quite a while. But that's not 100%. Now, if we have A major earthquake and resulting tsunami during this cleanup effort, specifically at certain junctions where very critical things are happening, and this isn't like a hurricane where you can look at a map and go, well, it's coming. Sometimes we can predict that an earthquake is likely, but other times they get us completely off guard. If that happens, we could have major problems. Major problems, because there's a damaged system being redamaged. And the amount that could be dumped. And I'm telling you still, the risk to the United States would primarily be confined to the western coast and it would still dissipate over time. But that's the big risk and that's what no one's really talking about and that's what we have to pay attention to. Fukushima is one of those things to keep an eye on. But it's not something to panic about. You're more likely to have your life directly affected in the next year by our own economic weakness than you are by a nuclear reactor in Fukushima. And if you want iodine, place salt with iodine in it. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't supplement with iodine, but I'm telling you right now, if you think you're going to buy somebody's iodine product and, and, and prevent yourself from getting cancer from Fukushima, I got a nice bridge to sell you and maybe some oceanfront property in Arizona. By the way, that article was sent to me by someone I highly respect in the... uh The subject line he used was wormwood, which of course could refer to the book of revelations and the polluting of the oceans and the end of all things in the apocalypse. So even he has been taken in. I responded back to him and said the article, the, the, the paragraph I read to you, uh, it was the most important part and I never heard back from him. Just saying. Don't be misled. You know, last week I read an article to you guys on, um, how some of our millennial generation is viewing government as the overall solution, and they just keep wanting more and more government. And um, it was a guy from Rolling Stone that said, you know, just let everybody own everything and a bunch of other, well, just moronic Things that have never worked in history that have often been promised that has always resulted in a furthering of the elite agenda and greater control over individuals and less liberty and generally ended in lots of death and, and destruction as well, including torture. And, you know, we can only make a utopia if we beat everybody into submission. So you better submit or we won't have utopia. And if you don't, we'll kill you and that'll be utopic. Right. That kind of thing. Um and I, I'm hard on the current generation, and I, I'm actually, I don't think people understand, I'm not so hard on millennials. I'm actually really being hard on the Gen Xers that have raised the millennials, that can't do anything and think they're entitled. The Gen Xers and the tweeners, Gen Y, that, those three generations there that have produced all these kids and continuing to produce them, are, are the reason these kids think the way they do. But they're not all like that, these kids. Some of us have our shit straight, and some of us that don't still have kids that are growing up and going, yeah, well, I'm going to figure this out for myself. And when you start to examine things, things generally start to change. And so I wanted to cover an article sent to me today by Dan, SuburbanStetter.com, on uh, how some young people are really starting to lose their faith in government which I think is very encouraging, and these are kids that are, I I alluded to this, that that the NSA snooping scandal, it's so funny that this came in because it might be the one thing to wake these kids up and make them start to mistrust government. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you start to question government at all, you head toward liberty. I'm telling you, and the more you investigate and the more you learn, the further you go. To where you start questioning the need for government in 90% of the places they have their fingers. Including on your body. Do we really need this? And I'm not completely an anarchist. I'm more of a minarchist. But here's the deal. When it comes to making government smaller and less intrusive, I'll take what I can get where I can get it. And if we went halfway to where I want to go, It wouldn't be far enough for me, but it would be a hell of a lot better. So I'll take as many people as I can just simply asking the question, should we trust government? Because I know where it leads. It at least leads in the right direction. So this is the Boston Globe politics section. It says, Obama's grip on younger voters slips. An electric atmosphere overtook the University of New Hampshire last election day. Students covered sidewalks with messages in shock, urging students to vote and to vote for President Obama. Buses and minivans circled campuses, shuttling students to the polls. The efforts paid off. Obama carried Durham North, uh, New Hampshire, by a 2-1 to vote on his way to winning the critical swing state. A little more than a year later, the mood has changed, alarmingly for the Democratic Party leaders in a shift that is also reflected in national polls. Students are increasingly turned off by politics and the Democratic Party. Even those who were enthusiastic about Obama say they are jaded by gridlock in Washington, disillusioned by the president they thought would be transformational. Quote, the public has seen this wasn't magic, end quote, said Tyler Gulbrand, president of the UNH College Democrats. Well, Tyler, you should have. Seen that before, but I'm glad you see it now. Quote, it wasn't this beautiful renaissance in our country. I think we expected a lot more, maybe just out of hope. End quote. I I, I think that, I, would it be fair to these kids? A lot of them did want to believe in Obama because they wanted to believe in something. And they'd gotten to a point where they really couldn't figure out what to believe in anymore. And it seemed like maybe this will work. Maybe this will work. Maybe this will be what, we, what we're looking for. Uh, back to the article. Domestic spying by the government, the technological incompetence demonstrated in the launch of the Obama healthcare marketplace, the continued weakness in the economy, all have conspired to undermine Democrats' big win advantage uh, among young voters age 18 to 29, according to specialists. Let me say one thing in here that I, I, I think you can see the political underpinnings of this author and, and, and this author's desire to, to jade things his way. Um, I don't think... That young people in college have really given half a crap about how bad the Obama healthcare marketplace has functioned. I think most of them aren't even aware yet that they're going to get fined on their taxes because most of these kids don't do their taxes until, you know, like the last minute. And I think a lot of them have no idea yet. Like there's still more to come from that. But I I don't think that that's really the problem. I think there's a lot of young people getting that first job and what have you with crappy health insurance trying to figure out how to make it better and seeing how much it costs, especially as they start to start families that are starting to go, wait a minute, this is not what we were promised. But I don't think that the fact that – I think that the, the problems with the Obamacare website are largely inflated in their real effect on people's opinion. I think the people that love government and love Obamacare and think it's a great thing because they don't get what it is yet and haven't paid for it yet, they largely just say, "Well, they'll they'll fix it." The government always fixes things. Whatever. Sometimes websites don't work, and the people that have always hated are trying to just pile on anything they can. I think the whole thing's a disaster, but I, the website is really not. Yeah, they wasted a shit ton of of our money. Will they do that every day? Right. So I I don't think that is the linchpin. And it's almost like when you, if you've written articles like this, and I have, when you list something, you always want three things. It balances a sentence. You know, if I say, people are choosing now mainly between black and red, and go on with an article, it doesn't have the same ring and feel to it if I say black, red, and orange. Even if orange is a distant second, I might pull that one in there. There's a certain art to writing, especially when you're trying to be compelling, because journalism that's in politics is really marketing, and the balance of three items in a list is a very well-known technique for that. So it's almost like they needed three, and they thought, well, this will be a good third one. Because I don't think the average millennial cares very much about the fact the Obamacare website doesn't work well. The average person that's enrolled in Obamacare that's managed to actually do it is in their 40s. So it's, it's interesting that even when you agree with many things that an author is saying to see, here's, your, here's their bias, it helps you start to pick things apart. That's why I'm doing it for you. okay? In a detailed national poll released last month by Harvard's Institute of Politics, nearly half of young voters said they would recall President Obama if they could. Only 41% approved of the job Obama was doing an 11-point drop from six months earlier. My <laughs> God, half said they would recall him. Not just, I don't like what he's doing. Like, we just we just say we changed our mind. We don't want him anymore. That's, that's huge. It's a trend line that top Democrats are worried about, one that top Republicans are trying to exploit heading into the 2014 midterm elections. Quote, people should be concerned about those numbers, end quote, said Tad DeVine, a longtime Democrat strategist. Quote, we've got to make sure young voters understand the stakes, end quote. Wait a minute. See, this is how political scum think. We should be concerned about those numbers. we got to make sure they understand the stakes. No, maybe what you need to pay attention to is they don't believe your bullshit anymore. right? It's not, oh, we need to figure out what we've done wrong and figure out how to do it right. It's, let's figure out how to retool our message so they'll believe in us again. Political pukes. And they exist on both sides, man. Many young people were inspired by Obama's message of hope and change. This is what I don't get by the young that were uh, you know inspired by the hope and change message this election. The man was president for 4 years. And you didn't get it then, why do you think you were going to get it now? But it's it's youthful optimism, right? They believe that government can do good and big things. Good and big things, right? And in droves, they volunteered, campaigned, and voted for Democrats by margins that had not been seen before, both in 2008 and 2012. But surveys show that electorate's newest generation is disappointed by government's performance. Quote, it's about expectations in terms of the relationship they have with Washington. End quote, said John De La Volpe, the director of polling at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Quote, when they elected President Obama in 2008, young people tell me through focus groups they were hoping for better different, stronger relationship with their government, that hasn't played out, end quote. For a generation that relies on smartphones and tablets, the government's inability to create functioning websites was unfathomable. Again, I don't think so. I don't think that the... If you're a college student that tried to sign up for Obamacare on the Obamacare website, let me know. If it's true, I want to report it right. I don't think that the college students of the world really care about that. They also believe that the law will bring more cost, even worse care, and little benefit to them. Why didn't they believe that six months ago? Among the 18- to 29-year-olds who don't have health insurance, fewer than one in three surveyed in Harvard said they're likely to enroll in the healthcare exchange. In other words, what we said all along, people don't want this, we were right. They wanted free healthcare. That's what they thought they were getting. There is no free (laughs) Young voters are also dismayed by the degree in which the National Security Agency is monitoring phone and Internet data. A majority of those surveyed by Harvard said the government shouldn't collect any personal information to aid national security efforts. But with Obama not on the ballot, perhaps a more troublesome trend for Democrats is that young voters are less likely to say they belong to a party. They are open to voting for Republicans. They may be drawn to third-party candidates, or they may simply not vote. I'd say option three might be the best one. For now. The day of the third party is not here yet. Quote, everyone was really excited about the election and what we could do, end quote, said Maria Caragillo, who in 2012 was UNH campus coordinator for the Obama campaign. After the election, we realized it's not happening. What we wanted to happen hasn't happened. That's making students back away from activity participating in elections. Students are also dismayed at the cost of their education, the debt they rack up, and how little is being done to change the system. "Quote: whenever I walk around campus and you ask, what is the biggest issue? People say, what are we going to do when we graduate? Caraquillo said, uh, because we have no money and we have no jobs. To keep young voters motivated, Democrats are looking at a range of issues, focusing on things like the high cost of college loans. <laughs> See, whatever they bitch about, they say, look, we're going to pay attention to that now right we we we've we've had the presidency for for five years now and and we could have done something about that, but now we're going to do something about that the same way we do with healthcare. Wait a minute, you screwed that up too, oh well, yeah, but what about our phones? your monitor phones oh don't worry it's for ahmed we're worried about Ahmed, not you right um <laughs> Legalization of marijuana is going to become an issue, Devine said. I believe it's an issue that will absolutely activate a voter base of young people in particular. And they'll probably use it to sell to the young voters. Um, You can read the rest of this article if you want to. But here's what you're really seeing. People in this age bracket have largely been apathetic to government. You know, there's always been the young Republicans and the young Democrats, and they're generally the people trying to get their 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 resume built up or they're just political idealists or whatever. But we've never seen a turnout in voters in the 18- to 24-year-old bracket like we saw in the two elections for Barack Obama. Never. It's not even who they voted for. It's that they voted, right? They were sold an idea. Government can fix this. And what they've come to the conclusion of is, in, in large part, doesn't seem that like, well, government can fix this, but it's not the Democrats that should fix it. It's the Republicans. It's maybe government can't fix this. Maybe government can't be trusted. Maybe if government is concerned about the conversation I had with Tammy yesterday on Facebook, that that's part of the problem. Maybe we should have been apathetic to government all along. And what you end up with is a generation that becomes apathetic to government because they're jaded by it, not because they're just ignoring it. And it's very, very different, and it could be a long-term trend that gives the people that want to maintain power a lot of problems. As millennials grow the hell up, put on their big boy pants and figure out how life works, they're going to do so in a way that's going to pretty much, I think for many of them, never turn back toward governments to fix it ever again. Unlike the hippies who never trusted government and then trusted government, these people trusted government and they got the shaft. So instead of the the normal course for a person in their 18, 20, 24-year-old is they just don't give a shit. They start to build a life. They start to value what they have. They start to value their family. They start to pay taxes. They start to deal with all the real things in life. And then they say, man, I need to pay attention to this. And then they start to vote. Right? That's, that's how most people that end up at least caring about what's going on in politics, left or right, that's how they get there. Lots, most of them, I would say. Where in this instance, that critical time when you're usually just out ignoring it, these people got involved and now they're like, oh, this sucks. You're doing what with my phone? Really? No. Yeah? Oh, shit. Even John Stewart says they're doing this? Crap, I trust him. Wow. Huh. Maybe this doesn't work. So what you what I think you have is a generation that we have been hard on here as being teacups, and in many instances they are, but they're going to reach a point where they're going to have a choice. If you throw somebody in deep water, they sink or they swim, and most people will figure out how to swim. This generation is going to figure out how to swim, and they are not going to trust the man. And And it may be this very generation we've been hard on that in the future becomes the main reformational force of liberty in this country. If they don't forget the lesson that they've just learned. And if they don't swing. If this generation simply swings its report support to Republicans with a different marketing message for the same crap. It'll be just like what happened to the Tea, the tea Party. The Tea Party was a force that I had some optimism for. I went to one event. It was very early in the movement. I listened to a preacher get up there and give a Southern Baptist, uh, you know, uh, presentation, what do you call it? A, a, a sermon, right? On the sins of sodomy and why it was important that government didn't allow it to happen. <laughs> and I watched people cheer and I went, this is, this is dead. This is, And then Rick Perry came and spoke. Slick Rick. And I went, this thing's done. This thing's been co-opted by the Republican Party. If these voters are co-opted by the Republican Party, or simply seek new Democrats, their movement will go nowhere. They will become another cog in the system that will lead toward greater tyranny. If these groups that are all beginning to fragment can come together, the Tea Partier, the Occupier, and the former activist can all start to come together and say, let's just take government out of the equation, and how could we actually fix this if government wasn't here? And this is the key when that happens. I've said this to people, and they don't want to believe it, but in the end, they always concede that it's the truth. If you pick any major problem, any major problem that you want to make a difference in, Now, as one person, you may be only able able to make a difference for 40 or 50 people. You may not be able to solve the problem wholesale, but if you could do it with 40 or 50 people, you could create an example and other people could replicate it. And when people decide to give up on a big political solution, that's what they generally do. There's not enough food in the urban landscape, so I'll go plant gardens. I can do that, and then I'm going to go do it. Well, the first problem you run into is money, like our gal that wrote the article we talked about earlier with time banking. I'm out planting gardens for free because the people that need them can't afford them. And and the, and the jobs that are available are highly competitive, which basically means she doesn't know how to market herself because there's lots of money there. But you know what? I'm not going to pick on somebody doing good things, and she's doing good things. Well, a person that does that a little bit and gets some results can generally make a compelling story. And they can generally, whether they have money or not, go to people with money who do want to help and say, look what we could do if we just had a few thousand dollars or a few tens of thousand dollars. And generally there are big donors who will whip out a checkbook and go, you know what? You got everything set up right where I know my money's going to be looked after. Here's a $50,000 check. Those people exist way more of them than your government would ever want you to believe. And if they solve the money problem, whether it's a little bit of money or a lot of money, doesn't matter. Then they get excited and they run off to slay the dragon and they run into the insurmountable problem. Money is never the insurmountable problem. Regulation and government is. They go to put those ten gardens in and they find out nine of them can't be put in and the tenth they were going to get away with. Now it's visible and they won't, they can't get that one in either. It's government. You give me a problem. You give me a major problem in America today. And I will give you a solution and another solution and another solution and another solution to it. I will give you multiple solutions, and I will show you government stepping in the way. Access to health care, okay? There was a doctor in Washington State, okay? With no regulations and no no nothing had to be passed, this doctor decided, you know what? I have a lot of patients who come see me a couple times a year. Here's what I could do. I could set up a retention program like you have with an attorney. And I could set it up basically that a family of four could pay me $75 a month. And that any time anybody in that family needed to see me, they could just show up and see me, and there would be no bill for a basic examination, writing prescriptions and things like that. But if we had to do lab services or testing or something like that, they would pay for that out of pocket. And he did it. And his patients loved it. The gun was fabulous. Many of them could not afford health insurance or they had high catastrophic insurance only by choice and couldn't afford the stuff that would cover a basic doctor's visit. And they went, the fact that I know I can go anytime I want, if everybody gets sick at the same time or whatever, it's totally worth this money. So in a free exchange of value, his patients had 100% access to his time for basic medical services for a very affordable rate. I think he was doing an individual for like 40 bucks a month. Okay, $480 a year. Go see the doctor as often as you want. People didn't abuse the system because it was private and it was between you knew you were abusing the system if you were. And you had to tender compensation in advance and the doctor was free to tell you I no longer wish to serve you because you're coming in every other day for a stubbed toe." So the system self-regulated and self-policed, and there was no problems, and you would have thought that doctor after doctor after doctor would have said, this is a better model. This doesn't mean I won't take insurance. This doesn't mean I won't serve other people. This just means I could create this vertical market in my practice for people that want it. And the freaking government came in and said, you can't do that, you're running a health insurance company. That's just one example. Over and over and over, people solve the problem, government squashes the solution. And you have these people, disillusioned by government, protesting, begging for more government. I just sent a picture to somebody today on the irony of this. It sent me another ironic little email, and it was a picture, many of you have seen it. It's a picture of an Occupy movement, and the protesters are chanting, and they want greater regulation from government. There's a picture of a girl, and an arrow's pointed at her, and it says, wants more government. In front of her is a SWAT team, and a member of a SWAT team is spraying her dead in the face with pepper spray, and the arrow points to him and says, more government. I think when you look at things like this, with college students that vastly supported this ass clown, twice, many of them twice, they voted two times in their lives now, and it was both for him saying, yeah, I don't really trust any of this anymore, you're starting to wake them up. There is no power greater for enlightening people to the abuses and incompetencies of government than government itself. All you need is for them to pull back from fighting with each other long enough to look at the actual mechanism of government. And to start asking questions like, do we really need this? Do they need to be doing this? So let's stop worrying about what you think government should be doing that they're not doing yet. Let's start asking about all the things that they're doing and go, do we really need them to do that? When we were out at a permaculture event, Josiah and I, we were talking to a guy that worked for government. He's a nice guy. We're not picking on him at all. We all work within a system we have to work with. But this guy's job, he said, well, my job's actually useful and important. And it's needed. Somebody has to do it. And government's the best thing to do it. Well, what do you do? And he said, you know when you go to a gas station and you look at the gas pump and there's a sticker on there that says this pump's been checked and it's been audited and it's not ripping you off? I'm the guy that goes out and tests that pump and puts that sticker on there. And Joe and I look at each other and I'm like, well, let's say there was nobody doing your job. And companies could rig pumps which does happen by the way uh, but let's say it was actually a real problem don't you think that automotive manufacturers would very quickly start building their gas tanks so that the where you put your gas pump in you push it there'd be an impeller in there and then that, that would that would go and the car would tell you how much fuel you had before you put it in how much after and how much you just added and you could look at your car and your car would knock out the pump And that once that happened and this particular gas station got known for shaving, that people just wouldn't shop there. They'd shop somewhere else. And don't you think that would become an intrinsically uh, common thing that all cars would come with? Just like all cars come with, you know, pretty much all cars come with air conditioning and heat because that's what the, the, the market demands. So couldn't your job of going around individually testing these pumps be taken care of by the market? It took like three seconds to come up with that solution. So that's an example of, what well, we need this, do we really? Do we really need this? And I think the biggest thing you can do to move a person toward liberty is to get them off the conversation about what should be done and onto the conversation about what's being done and that doesn't need to be done. And I think we can, this is the beauty of this. I think that I can sit down people from all walks of life, all economic statuses, And if we start picking on our government, we'll find 8 out of 10 times that we'll agree. We don't need them doing this. It probably won't be the hot button big political issues. Like I would say we don't need them passing more gun control laws. We don't need them. There's a shit ton of, of, of gun control laws we don't need right now. They're useless. They should go away. And that'll polarize everybody. But if we start analyzing departments that don't have the hot button attached to them, the emotions attached to them, we do that first. We'll start tearing them ap- apart, peace, by merciless peace. And all of a sudden, if you had a population of millions of Americans going to government and saying, we want you to stop doing all these things. We promise you that in our new administration, no, 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 stop promising. no, 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 no. We don't want you to do anything else for right now. We want you to focus first on getting rid of this stuff over here. We all agree this sucks. We all agree you shouldn't be doing it now. I promise that my administration will create new jobs. No, 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 no. We don't want to hear it anymore. We want you to stop doing these things. Maybe I'm believing in a utopia when I say that. But it wouldn't be a utopia. It would just be a path in the right direction. I'm tired of my nation sliding toward tyranny. I don't believe we can flip a switch and be the great nation... That that, that there is a promise we could become. I don't think this nation has ever fulfilled its, its promise to what it could be. I think there's been times when we've been closer to it. But we've always had hindrances holding us back. The way we've treated a certain class of people. The way we've committed war on other peoples. There's always been something that's held us back. But we've definitely been closer. So we can at least get that close again. But we have to turn the tide. We have to change the direction of slide. And the way to do that is to start questioning the needs that we think we have. The things that we think only government can do. And leave a lot of the big shit for later. If we start dismantling government, then you open people up to the fact, well, we didn't need them for that, we didn't need them for that, we we didn't need them for that. Then you can get a lot more of these bigger things looked at. You know, why does every conversation, when you tell somebody that's pro-government, left or right, that you're libertarian, go to roads? Well, who would build the roads? That's why I can make a case that large blocks of the highway system could be privately run better than government. But I don't need to do that right now. Uh, you want the government to build roads? Okay, fine, they can do that. What about schools? I'll tell you what. I think as long as we can have a private uh, educational system being built up and developed and homeschooling and all unschooling and all these other things going on parallel, fine, the government can do schools. Let's not even go there. Not because I don't believe that we can transform those two, but because I know that we can agree that the guy that puts the sticker on the pump doesn't really need to be there. But there is a technological solution to that job, and I would feel bad that the guy that I know would have to find new employment and I hope he doesn't think I'm picking on him. It's just a convenient example. How many people in the FDA are unnecessary? Totally unnecessary. How many things that the FDA is doing are totally unnecessary? How much law enforcement goes to do things like tell little girls they can't have a lemonade stand? How much of that's totally unnecessary? If, if government wasn't doing these nonsensical BS things and actually focused on the core things that are really important How much more effective would they be at the things that we can all agree there's at least a case to be made there? But it all starts with the question, do we really need them doing all the things that they're doing? And if the answer is no, when you're talking to someone you totally disagree with politically, if you both feel the answer to that question is no, have that discussion. You might find the commonality there eventually. On that note, I'd like to kind of wrap up today, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about what you can do. I think the most powerful thing that you can do as an individual is to find problems and solve them without any permission, period. To just find a problem and work on it. To, to, to pick one or two things you're going to do. And if you want to do them in the political world, such as get the government to stop doing something, go for it. And any way that I can help that when I see it that's reasonable, I try to do it. If somebody wants to get the government to stop doing something, I'm generally on board with it. I don't even usually care what it is. I, I mean, seriously, I'm at a point now where anything that they're currently doing that they can't keep doing, I'm good with. Like, I'll take whatever I can get to slow down that machine. But I would prefer that your solution stick to what can you solve in your neighborhood. If you know an old person that no one looks after... Look after them a little bit. Get some help. Get some people looking after them. If, if you have um, a, a, a person in your neighborhood that needs some help, help them out. Get involved. If you have a problem with somebody, try to solve it instead of calling the police. If someone has a problem with you and they reach out with you to try to solve the problem, don't just tell them to F off even if you think they're wrong. At least have a dialogue and a reasonable conversation and try to work things out. How can you solve these problems? That's that's one of the most powerful things that people could do. The next most powerful thing you can do is stop letting the TV tell you what you care about. I'm not even saying not to get information from the television. I'm just saying don't let them tell you what the important questions are. The problem with the news isn't the information itself. It's that it's packaged to convince you this is what's important to you. It's not what's important to you. Most of the shit they put on that TV is not important to you. It does not affect your life at all. Or if it does, what you think about it won't change how it affects your life. It's like the person going, you see that, that that scrape on your arm, and they're thumping the scrape on your arm. They're not really making it worse, but they're sure not making it any better. And they're irritating it. And they're making you unhappy. Because it's not what really is important to you. Start asking yourself your own questions. What do I care about? What is important to me? What am I going to learn more about? What do I really believe in? The next thing you have to start asking yourself. Why do I dislike any group of people? And is it, is it even justified? I don't mean, why do I disagree with a group of people? I disagree vehemently with people that think government is a solution. But I don't dislike them as individuals. I want to talk to them. I want them to tell me what government has done right. And I want them to tell me, more importantly, what do they feel government has done wrong. Not what they've done wrong by inaction, but what actions have government taken that's wrong. If I dislike them as individuals, I can't have that conversation with them. Now, I'll get on here and rant sometimes when some idiot writes an article like the one last week, this Jesse guy, with that everybody, own everything, and unemployment sucks, so just give everybody a job. I mean, there is idiocy in the world. And I'll call idiocy what it is. And I'll, when somebody's behaving like a moron, I'll point it out. But in the end, those people are the polarizing figures, and then everybody else that, that believes that there can be a solution from government gets lumped in with that moron. Don't do that. Start having reasonable conversations with people and start identifying with the individual over the idea and find the commonalities where you agree. A person that you do that with is far more open to your ideas. And if they stay married to, well, there should be no profit in health care and the government should run it as a single-payer system, They just, you know what, you and they are not going to make that happen or not happen that's going to have to be millions of people changing their mind to one way or the other to make that happen or not happen. I I think the problem we have when we debate individuals is we actually believe that like somewhere in our our twisted mind, we begin to believe like this is if this person understood what I understood, that everything would change. That person could do a full 180 on their opinion, completely agree with you. And what will change in society is absolutely nothing. But if you both agree on something actionable, like, Hey, Let's go make sure Mrs. Etheridge has enough food this week. Then change can happen. Actual positive change. And the more times a person experiences a move toward freedom, liberty, or positivism, in the absence of government, the more they will question the need for government in the first place. If you have somebody that's afraid of guns and wants gun legislation, don't sit down and give them facts and figures. Put them in a car, take them to a gun range, and give them some professional instruction. Get them shooting. You can convert somebody more on gun ownership with one trip to the range than you ever will with a long political debate. Change your idea of retirement planning right now, folks. The old paradigm of put money in your 401k and that and Social Security will take care of you is dying. You're saving a currency that's constantly devalued instead of using the currency to empower systems that will support you. I'm not saying not to save money. I save money. And I'm not planning on, you know, the day I retire not having any, any cash left over and have it all in the systems, but I'm making a tremendous investment on setting up things that will feed me and my wife, when we're older, will feed us the highest quality nutrition possible at the time we need it most. As we get that corner and we begin to turn, we'll focus more and more on our energy needs. How can we improve our energy efficiency and production? We're very concerned with our health. I'm not as worried about Medicaid as most people, even at my age, who know that we're heading into our, you know, we're about to, I'm in my forties. I'm making that turn toward, you know, middle age. And you start to head in toward, you know, senior senior citizenhood. It's 20 years, 25 years away, but it's still, it's, it's on the horizon. If you're thinking about it far differently, but I'm probably less concerned than the average person in their forties and fifties, because I know that my health is my responsibility. So I'm focusing on my health For myself, I don't want to be reliant on the system. I'm less concerned about insurance for health because I don't want to rely on that system in the first place. I want a doctor to save my life if I get hit by a car or if my heart goes into cardiac arrest. I don't want them prescribing medications to me that I don't really need. Everything about the way I evaluate life and my future is predicated on what can I do to ensure that future versus what can somebody else do to ensure that future. I'm less concerned about crisis, not just because I'm prepared, but because I know I'm in control of my life. I know that one way or another we'll get through it. I know that I can rally people together And stand up and lead when necessary. And I know that in spite of the fact that sometimes I come across like I have a big ego, I know when to get out of the way. Because I'm willing to examine those things in my own life. That's what I suggest you do as well. Don't get married to ideologies. Pick your battles. We learned in our history lesson today. There are times when the only thing you can do is give government what it wants so that you can survive long enough to eliminate the perceived need for government by others. There are battles you cannot win now. So you have to survive long enough so that you can win eventually. Ask your own questions, though, above all things. Ask your own questions, determine for yourself what matters to you. When you turn the TV on tonight, and most of you will, even if you normally don't, put a, a regular news channel on, I don't care if it's Fox, and I don't care, put it like at the top of the hour, like a typically packaged news broadcast, it's your homework for today if you'll do it, and watch it with new eyes. And start asking yourself every time they come to a new segment, do I really care? Does this really affect me? If there's a problem, how could it be solved? Is this a question I would ask in the first place for myself or has it been served up on a plate for me? And what is the possible agenda of this? If you do that through one newscast, I'll warn you. It's the blue pill red pill thing like the Matrix. When you do it, you will forever be jaded to mainstream media for the rest of your life. You will never again sit through a newscast without rolling your eyes and pissing off the person next to you that thinks it's important. It's worth it, though. Freedom is worth the cost. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Body up there, care.